Many of you may not be aware, but last evening uh, at Don Gibson Theater, uh, many in, in our church and our church sponsored this event for encouraging single moms. And uh, I understand the event went very well. And I want to thank all of you who were a part of that, uh, who made it possible uh, for a night of encouraging single moms. I can't think of a better group of people or a, a, pers or a group of people in need of encouragement than many times than single moms. So I'm so proud of a church uh, that gets behind that. And so we need to continue to pray for them also. Well, if you will, if you have a way of looking at God's Word, turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Today's message... Um, could be the most important message you'll ever hear. Now, some of you are sitting there saying that's pretty bold and pretty uh, uh, big thing to say or however you want to put it. But it's really not about the, me standing here. It's more about what I believe God would want you to hear as it relates to righteousness. You see, there's a lot of ideas out there about what's called righteousness. And if we're not careful our misinterpretation or our misappropriation of righteousness will eternally damn us. Now, I know that sounds harsh, but that's what the Word says. And the thing that we need to understand is to this morning as you're sitting here, I want to be speaking to those of you who may have a false sense of righteousness there in your life. I want you to listen to this message because most of this message is just God's Word being spilled out where you can see it for what it is and what God's Word has to say about it. But the other part of what we're looking at this morning is that we also need to pray that God's Spirit would move on your life today. You say, well, I'm already a believer. Well, that's great. I'm so glad you're a follower of Jesus Christ and all that's great. But let me just tell you, the idea of righteousness needs to be front and center in your life, even as a believer in Christ, a true follower of Jesus. And so this morning, I want you to join me as we continue the series, Suit Up. Today, we're looking at the breastplate of righteousness. Now, many would say, well, what is a breastplate? Well, many of us believe that Paul, when he was describing the armor of God, he was probably thinking of a Roman soldier, and that's what we've been looking at for the last several weeks. But Roman soldiers had really different kinds of breastplates. There were those who had linen in which horn and, and hooves were sewn in. That's some of the more primitive breastplates. There's also chain mail, which are small metal rings. Some just had leather. But during the time of Jesus and the time of Paul, most of them had molded metal when it came to the breastplate of righteousness. So look at some of the pictures here. You can kind of see it. This is probably what it looks like uh, or looked like during that time. As, as time went on, of course, it got a little fancier and all that, but that's probably the basic model of it. And, of course, you see the next picture. Uh, this is the Roman soldier with the breastplate. We've already looked at the belt. And you can see that it's a very valuable piece of equipment for the, to, to defensively stand against any enemy. And if you really want to understand it more clearly, you need to understand that it, it was essential to protect the vital parts of the warrior, especially the heart. And it is, it is in the heart that we see, as, as Paul's writing this, he's basically telling us we need to be careful because the enemy's coming for the vital organs. <laughs> the enemy wants to do as much damage as he possibly can, and the only way we can stand against that is to stand 
with the breastplate of righteousness. But what is it really protecting? What is really protecting are our vulnerabilities. I want you to think about vulnerabilities. The, the enemy, if you really understand him well, never wastes an opportunity to attack our weaknesses and our vulnerabilities. How many of you have been a, a follower of Jesus long enough to know that's so true? He comes after our weakness. He comes after our vulnerabilities. I want you to think about Eve with the serpent. And you see that, that storyline with, with Eve and the serpent. And the, of course, the serpent's the enemy himself. She was faced with the enemy herself. And, and she was deceived. But what's really interesting is that, that Adam, what he did in the whole scene. Adam basically, if you really think about the story, chose Eve over God. He, he could have gone the other way and say, Eve, what have you done? All these different things, and maybe that was part of the conversation. But the point is, who did he follow after this? He followed Eve. Now, many would say, well, what was his vulnerability? What was his weakness? It was Eve. And the enemy knew how to use that there also. How about Elijah? When Elijah was, was out being the bold prophet that he was, and he stood on Mount Carmel, and he faced down the Baal prophets, and all of a sudden he hears uh, that, that they're coming for his life, and, 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 and Jezebel's coming, and, and he gets all up in a tizzy, and he goes running, only to sit by, down by a stream, basically just wanting to die there. He comes after our vulnerabilities. Samson with Delilah. David looking down on the rooftop of Bathsheba. Jesus in the wilderness. All these were places in which the enemy inserted themselves in the lives of others to bring about destruction. And he even, while he, he definitely came through with the others we named, with Jesus, he, stood, he didn't stand a chance. Jesus stood firm. He stood firm. So here's the question I have for you this morning. What about you? Where does he attack you? And really, this, this verse, uh, these verses we're about to read, it really says this. Are you equipped to withstand the enemy? Are you equipped when he comes for the vulnerabilities, when he comes for the, the weaknesses that we may have? So let's look at Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, my brother, being strong who? In the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. That means there's a whole scheming process that's going on behind the scenes, and many of us, while we can't touch it, we're definitely being affected by it. And it's all around us. And then he says, take up the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to withstand in the evil day and have done all to stand. To be an upright soldier. To stand there. And then he goes on, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. We looked at this, this last week. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So, vi so valuable piece. It's a very valuable piece because of the vulnerabilities and the weaknesses we have. So look at the introduction. Righteousness is about the prospect of being right and in fellowship with God. And I want to break this down before we go any further in the introduction. I want you to I want to make a distinction here. When it means that we're being made right with God, that's really what happens at salvation. 
What happens at salvation is literally you moving from a position of not being uh, accepted by God, an object of wrath, according to the scriptures, to being someone who's made acceptable before God. That happened at salvation. And there was a righteousness that was involved there. And, and we'll talk more about that later. But then, now that we're a true follower of Jesus Christ, we, we want and desire, hopefully, to be in fellowship with God. It's still important that we are in fellowship with God. Not just right with God, but in fellowship with God. Many, look on your outline, even in the church, have a misunderstanding as to what it means to be righteous or right before God. Matter of fact, how a person views righteousness, as I said earlier, determines their eternal destination. So, what is righteousness? Holy and upright living in accordance with God's standard. Whereas sin is falling short of God's standard. So, righteousness is standing up or, or in the right standing with God. We're doing the acts of righteousness, and, and that defines us, or we stand in sin. We're not right with God. Let, let me just say this as we're getting ready to look into this. Every one of us, at some point in our lives, we're not right with God. Every one of us could not live up to the standard of righteousness that was expected of God. None of us. We all failed in that. So the first thing I want to do, or what I want to continue to do this morning, I want to show you five types of righteousness that I find in Scripture. And as we make our way through these, right, these ideas of righteousness, I want you to try to place yourself in where you are or what's lacking in you. Okay? So the first one is what we find as pseudo-righteousness. And it's really the idea to think one is righteous before, because they have not sinned, or because one imagines they are better than others, or because one thinks they are basically good, the idea that they're good outweighs their bad. And so there's three false ideas of righteousness right here. Again, let's go back to the first one. To think one is righteous because they say they have not sinned. Now, let me just say this. Before you laugh at this, there's some people that I've met who believe they're living there and have, have continued to live there. Boy, what a deception. But do you know what the Bible says? 1 John 1. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness. Again, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. Wow. Bible goes on to say in Romans 3.10, there's none righteous, no, not one. None of us came into this world righteous. None of us made ourselves righteous because we're not righteous apart from Christ. And then thirdly, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all guilty before God. We have no righteousness in, of our, in and of ourselves that makes us acceptable before God. Here's another false idea of righteousness. Because one imagines they're better than others. I, I, I've actually heard people, I've talked to people about their faith or lack of faith. And, and as I'm talking to them, sometimes I'll even hear this. Well, I'm better than those people who even go to church. I know some of them. 
And guess what? They may be. I, I know people in the church. <laughs> Sorry. Wasn't speaking about this church, of course. It's funny how things come out of your mouth before you can really grab them back, isn't it? You know? <laughs> but, but the point I'm trying to make here is the comparisons that people make. Your comparison is not with the person beside you. Your comparison sits in heaven. He's the one that we compare ourselves when it comes to righteousness or lack of. So basically in your study in the connect group, Christian mentioned it, you're only getting half of the message when it comes. In your connect group, that's what you're going to be looking at when we compare ourselves to others. And then thirdly, because one thinks that they're basically good, that their good outweighs the bad. How many of you uh, have had this thought at some point in your life before you learned the truth? Or maybe you're sitting here today and this is what you believe. That God has these scales out there and if the good outweighs the bad... You're in. It sounds like it's something very simple, but that's really where a lot of people come at it from. I do more good than I do bad. I'm not such a bad person. Well, you're not in touch then with what God desires and what God expects. I want you to think about this. Here's a verse that blows that out of the water. James 2.10. For, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point or in one point, they're guilty of breaking all the law. Wow. You mean I have the big ten, ten commandments? If I keep nine and there's that one thing that's out there, it makes me guilty of all that's exactly what the Bible says. Wow, that's hard hitting. So, so that means I'm, I'm, I'm just as guilty as one who commits all ten? Yes. Again, the comparison is not with the person beside you, but the one who sits in heaven. And then he goes on, Paul writes this in Romans chapter 10. He says, brother, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. That they would come to the correct understanding of Jesus Christ and his righteousness for them. That's what he's saying in this statement. For I bear witness, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to the knowledge, not according to the correct knowledge, basically. What it is that Paul could have been referring to, to what he was before he had his conversion experience. Maybe he's talking about the Pharisee. The Pharisee has a zeal for God. The Pharisee desired and attempted to live a sinless life. You say, how, how, how far were they willing to take it? Because here's what you understand. When the law was presented, it was put there, guess what they did? They added to the law. And what they did is they added to the law so, much, so many things that basically that kept them from here. So what they did to, to keep them here, they went over here and created other laws to keep them from getting there and therefore not sin. How many of you remember when the Pharisees accused Jesus of being a sinner? He wasn't breaking God's law. Guess what he was breaking? He was breaking what they created. He was perfect righteousness. They attempted to be perfect righteousness, but they failed. And Paul's basically saying, hey, I was one of them. I had a zeal. I can relate to where they're coming from. But then he says, 
For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, just as he was at one time, and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. You may sit here this morning, you may say, well, I'm not a Pharisee. I didn't add all this stuff to it and all that. No, but you're doing the same thing. You're, you're basically creating all this. You've created a system that sits outside of God. If the good outweighs the bad, I'm in. Hmm. You see, this was Paul's challenge before his encounter with Jesus. You remember when he was on his way to Damascus? You, you know what he was doing, don't you? He was going to capture Christians and possibly kill them for being Christians. But you need to understand, Paul had a zeal to be righteous and right before God. Before his conversion experience, before Jesus intercepted him. And he really, his focus was be, to be right before God. That's, that's a goal all of us should, ha should have. But guess what? It doesn't get you there. He was attempting to do it in his own righteousness. Next, what are the types of righteousness found in Scripture? Well, there's pseudo-righteousness, false righteousness that we've uncovered, and we've seen it straight out of Scripture. And then there's our only hope, positional righteousness. Positional. And that means to credit or impute Jesus' righteousness to someone who is not capable of living the standard of God's righteousness. Let me ask you a question based on what you've learned so far. Are you capable of living up to God's standard for righteousness? Anybody? Are you capable, apart from Jesus, to do that in your own righteousness? No, you're not. That's the conclusion you must come to when you read God's word in its entirety. But then there's this new, there's this idea of, of righteousness that can come and be credited to us. How many of you like the idea of that? Yeah, that's a good thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So that no one may be able to boast in the presence of God, but it is from God that you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. And he's, in the context he's talking about here, he's talking about revealing his plan of salvation. And righteousness, here's that word again, making us acceptable to God and sanctification, making us holy and setting us apart for God and redemption, providing our ransom from the penalty of sin. So here's, here's what we must conclude from this verse. If we have no righteousness meeting the standard of God, the penalty of sin falls on us. Falls on us. How do we get around that? <laughs> What's the loophole? <laughs> Knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It's your only hope. Trusting in His righteousness. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us this. For he, speaking of God the Father, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to literally be sin for us. Think about it. On the cross, the person with no sin, the person who is righteous before his holy Father, all of a sudden, the Bible says the sin of humanity was placed on him. The one who knew no sin encountered it was placed on him. Whose sin would that include? Those who trust in his righteousness, not their own. 
those in which it was put on. So when Jesus hung on the cross, here's what we need to identify. This is what we need to look at. Our sin was placed on him. And the penalty for, for that sin was also placed on him. Therefore, by trusting in his righteousness, which is positional, I'll show you in a minute what I'm talking about, it's therefore the fact now we're right before God. Our own didn't cut it. His, it cut it. Think about that. So what does this mean? Here's what it means. We have to be perfectly righteous to be with God. We could not meet this prerequisite or demand. So Jesus lived perfectly to do that for us. Now we are to place our lives in him. How do we do that? Repent of our sins. Turn by faith to Jesus, believing and trusting in who he is. That meets the demand. That, in, that will include us in being right with God. Next, what are the types of, trans, uh, types of righteousness found in the Scripture? Well, there's a pseudo-righteousness. We talked about that. That's where many people believe, in, 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 uh, especially in the Western culture. And then there's positional righteousness. It's basically we're positioned in righteousness, not because of our own, because of what was bestowed upon us, what was credited to us by Jesus. But then there's pres prescribed righteousness. Now, it means to receive God's power to enable them to overcome their flesh, the world, and the enemy, and live righteously. Now, let me ask you a simple question. Let's say you forsook the pseudo-righteousness. You realize your righteousness wasn't going to get you anywhere. And you clothe yourself and receive the righteousness of Jesus. Now that you've done that, how many of you since then have lived perfectly? Anyone? Please, anyone? No. No, none of us. So it almost makes you wonder, did it work? <laughs> it worked only because positionally you were made righteous. Positionally, you stand there. That means this. When G, you've heard this before. When, 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 uh, when, <laughs> when God saw Jesus on the cross, he saw us. Now, because we received that, when he looks at us, who does he see? He sees Jesus. Because we've accepted it. Because we're now in him. We've been placed in him because we've received the righteousness that was bestowed to him that he gives to us. That's the credit we get before God is the righteousness of Jesus. But how do we live in this world where there are so many things that takes us off the path of righteousness? That's also what's given. In John 1.12, here's what it says. But as many as received him, received Jesus, they received his positional righteousness, his perfect righteousness. To them, he gave the right. Some translations say the power. It's probably even a better language, a better uh, uh, interpretation. The power to become children of God. To, the power to be 
caught up in the reality that we're children of God to those who believe in his name. Matthew 19, 26, but Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. The disciples were sent out. How many of you remember the story? They were sent out to do what he'd already been doing. And they went out and they failed. And they came back to Jesus and said, basically, it didn't work. You remember the story? And Jesus said, hey, guys, it's not possible in your own strength. It's not possible. But all things are possible through God. All this can happen with him. It's not in your own power that you can live the life God's called you to live. You're hopeless in that. How many of you have realized that? You're hopeless in that. And then he goes on in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul, you remember this verse. He basically pled three times for God to take away something in his life that he didn't want there any longer. Uh, the, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what that is. And, and yet we have that in our lives too. Isn't there something we'd like for God to take away? That, that, that God deems necessary to be in you, but you desire it to be gone? Here's what Paul said about that. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. In your weakness, in this vulnerability, that's when you'll see the power. You have the potential to see the power of God in your life when there's a weakness there, when there's a vulnerability there. Therefore, Paul came to this conclusion. I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness. He went from Going, just pleading before God, take it away, take it away, take it away, to say, well, okay, if I'm going to see the power of God, if I'm going to see these things happen in my life that uh, supersede anything humanly possible, so be it. I'll welcome it. Let it be. Why? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Let me ask you a question. How many of you, would, how many of you like, would like to see a move of God happen in your life? You, you know, so many times, here's the way we want to define it. And this is what prosperity gospel tries to convince you. A move of God would mean more money. A move of God would be blessings of materialism. A move of God would, would be in, in healing me from what I'm dealing with and, 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 and all these different things. But you know something? Most of the time, the move of God that we find in our lives, and how many of you can testify to this, is through our weaknesses and our vulnerabilities that we see him do things we could never imagine. That's when the reality of God seems to come. Next, Ephesians 3.20 says this, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, how's he going to pull this off? According to the power at work within us. You mean to tell me that when I accept Jesus' righteousness, I forsake the false righteousness, trying to think I can be righteous on my own. I receive his. I, re I turn from my sin. I place my faith in him. All of a sudden, there's a power available to me to help me in this life. It's exactly what God's word says. It's exactly. So, how does that play out? It's what we call practical righteousness. So we see pseudo-righteousness, positional righteousness, prescribed righteousness. There's a power that's available to us. Now practical righteousness. How now are we to live? Well, this means this. To deny one's sin nature 
when tempted by the enemy and daily submit and obey God's word. That's practical righteousness. So, 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 so here's what this means. How do I live going forward? How, how does that happen? Well, Romans 6, Paul writes this. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Okay? He's saying be dead to sin, but alive to God. He's basically saying be dead to sin. Because if you're not dead to sin, your relationship takes on a whole different meaning than when you die to sin. You see what I mean? So there's not a whole lot that's going to happen over here if we're not dead to sin. We got to be dead to sin. It says, but what are we alive to? We're alive to God, and here it is, in Christ Jesus. It's basically saying we're alive to God because it was provided by Jesus. Okay? It's possible. It's the whole idea of a resurrection life, the resurrected life. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body like it did before your salvation. I mean, you were, you, you were held up. In your sin, what the demands of the flesh you pursued. He says, don't go back to that. So that you obey its lust and passions. Do not go on offering members of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness. Your members is how you engage the world, how you respond to the enemy. Don't let all that happen. Don't become an instrument of wickedness. He's saying this in the context that we are capable, even after we accept Jesus' righteousness, we're still capable of living like we did before we came to salvation. How many of you can testify that that's true too? We don't like to admit that one, do we? But then he says this. Stop doing that. But offer yourselves to God. It, it means a decisive, a, a decisive act. It, and, and when he says offer, that's sacrifice language. As a sacrifice to live obediently as those alive. It means you've been raised from the dead. That means a new life. The resurrected life because of our new positional and prescribed righteousness. I came to know Jesus. I'm positionally righteous before God, okay? Therefore, I'm prescribed. He gives me the power to live, to overcome the things of the flesh, this world, and what the enemy throws at me, in which I can protect the vulnerabilities. He's saying all that's possible. And your members, your fleshly response, that's the idea here, all of your abilities, sanctified, set apart, as instruments, that word instruments literally means a weapon of war. If you go look at the context, it means weapon of war. So and as instruments of righteousness, we're to be instruments of righteousness now, not wickedness, of the righteousness to God. It comes by way of submission. And then in John chapter 16, Jesus said this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go, for if I go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, have y'all figured out who he's talking about now? The Holy Spirit. When, he's com when he comes, he will convict the world of sin. You know what that word convict literally means? He'll cause conflict. The Holy Spirit, when he comes, is going to cause a conflict. How many of you have ever felt conflict in your heart before? 
And most of the time, that conflict originates from the fact that there's something that's been put before me that I may want with the flesh, but I know better because of the Spirit. That is the conflict that rests in us. So Jesus is saying, I've got to go that the one that can bring the conflict to make you go in the right way may come. How many of you need the Holy Spirit? you got to have the Holy Spirit. It's your only hope. He's come to convict. That means to bring in the conflict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. That means I am acceptable to God. That means I'm going to the Father. And if you want to go to the Father, you go with me. And the Holy Spirit is going to orchestrate that work. Okay? And then he says, of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged and will finally be judged. The one causing much of this. And then we come to Ephesians 4, verse 20. If you'll turn over one page, you're probably there. Ephesians 4, 20. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth in Jesus. That you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust. So, so really, he's talking about a change of clothes here. Okay? And be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you may put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Then listen, only Jesus can bring about the change of clothes. You understand that, right? Let's say you're over here in your pseudo-righteousness, your false righteousness, and you believe you're holy before God. You believe you're in right standing with God because you set up the system that would make you acceptable to God. Boy, that sounds arrogant, doesn't it? But that's what many people do. And all of a sudden, maybe there's a smudge, and you think, well, I'll clean that up. No, I'll clean that up. He's saying you can't do it. you got to take those clothes off. you got to put and clothe yourself with what God provides through Jesus Christ. You can't, you can't do it over here. You may try to clean it up. You may try to put your best face forward. You may have the world fooled. But you're still as dirty as you've ever been. You've got to take those clothes off and put on what he's provided. And that's what he's telling us. So, what are the types of righteousness found in Scripture? Pseudo, positional, prescribed, practical, and then there's, this is the best one. Perfected righteousness. To realize one day the battles of this life are with our flesh, the world, and the enemy will end at Jesus' return. And those who have trusted in his righteousness will be perfected. 1 John chapter 3. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed really who we truly are. Because of our positional righteousness... Because he looks at us through the lens of Jesus. That's the only way he sees us. That's the only way we're acceptable before him. There's going to come a day in which that righteousness that was positional will become permanent and perfected in us. You know what that literally means? No more battle. How many of you are sick of the battle? How many of you are at times grow weary of the battle? 
the temptations, the way the enemy comes at you with weaknesses, the way he comes at you with fear and doubt and all those other things that we're going to talk about next week. He just comes at you and comes at you. How many of you look forward to the day when Jesus appears and it's like, yes, it's over. The battle was won a long time ago. Now it's realized. My righteousness that was over here that really wasn't my righteousness, Jesus' righteousness, all of a sudden it's going to be made perfection. Perfection. So one day the conflict will be over. You know, there's so many of you, and I'm the same way, you try to imagine what you're going to do in heaven. How many, how many of you have ever thought about that? How many of you when you were a little kid, how many of you heard preachers say, yeah, you don't like it being in here right now. You ain't going to like heaven. I used to say, please, Lord, don't let heaven be like this service. I'm just saying. <laughs> How many of you have been there before? When you were a kid, you thought we were just going to sit around. And, and anyway, I won't get into all that. But, but is there worship of God? Absolutely. Uh, but here, here's what you need to understand. The battle's over. To me, that's going to be a celebration that I think will last at least 100 of those years. That's going to be a big celebration. Perfection. Conclusion this morning. The greatest deception created by the enemy is a misconception and misappropriation of righteousness. This not only destroys any chance of being right and in fellowship with God, but also makes us or makes one vulnerable from the attacks of the enemy. You better get this idea of righteousness right. Don't fall for the faults. Give everything to the position of what Jesus Christ has done on your behalf. So, your view of godly righteousness, I want you to think about this, must be right. Why does it, how come it must be right? Because heaven and hell hang in the balance. Trusting in your own righteousness I'm just going to tell you, maybe hard to hear, you're hellbound based on Scripture. Accepting what Jesus provides and his righteousness, you're heavenbound based on the authority of Scripture. I want to close with Paul's own story. I want you to think about his conversion. But before we get to the conversion, I want you to even think about before. Did you know Paul was a, a, there was a special set of Pharisee that we believe Paul was? Paul was a group, was with the group of Pharisees who believed they could literally usher in the kingdom of God. They literally do. They, they believed the Messiah would come back if Israel would just get right with God. And so basically, Paul went around, and he, the reason he wanted to destroy Christianity is because he thought this cult, is what he literally thought it was, this cult that was surrounded by Jesus was threatening the return of the Messiah. How many of you ever heard this before? He literally was one who said, I'm going to stop it. I'm going to stop this because I want the Messiah to come. And I will be righteous, and I will do everything. And, and, and so he, he was ambitious, he had zeal, he had passion, and then Jesus shows up. How many of you are glad when Jesus shows up? You know what he's getting ready to do, don't you? Paul was getting ready to go find some more Christians, kill them, get rid of them, get rid of the influence. He wanted it all destroyed. His intentions, if you really think about it, weren't that bad. But they were totally misguided. 
Because when you narrow it all down, you know what Paul was trying to, to do? He was seeking his own righteousness. And then he accepts Jesus' righteousness. And then here's how he ends the last letter we believe he wrote. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. He desired that all his life. He wanted it. He thought he could live it. He thought he could make it happen with his own life. And then he met Jesus and thought, I can't do it. It's, it's got to be about him. Two questions Paul asked when he had his encounter with Jesus. Lord, who are you? You know who Jesus, Jesus is the one who brought his righteousness to him. And then he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? He was living out the righteousness of God. All that was his story. And then he says, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not only to me, but also those who love his appearing. Those who, who look forward when the battle's over. When the victory can be declared. He's like, that's it right there. For some of us, we won't be alive when Jesus comes. We will already be gone. But for many of us, possibly this, just maybe this generation, we'll see him as he is. The point is this. He's going to defeat Satan, the enemy, and all that, and the battle one day will be over. So here's the question. Which righteousness fits your life? Let me, let me just say this. If you're leaning, leaning on false righteousness or pseudo, the rest is not available to you. The rest is not available. But if you forsake that and trust in his righteousness, everything I declared to you came straight out of God's word this morning. That is for you. That's for you. Would you stand with me? I right, ask the prayer partners to come forward. Father, we just come to you right now. And Lord, I do believe this is probably one of the most important sermons that a preacher can preach is what we shared here today. Based on the evidence that so many people misrepresent what righteousness really is. Based on the fact that they don't know how to appropriate the righteousness of Jesus in their life. Father, if there's one here today that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, one who, who basically they're sitting in their own righteousness, they, they kind of believe where the false righteousness is. Father, they desire to go towards what Jesus has provided. I pray today they'll come forward. They'll talk to a prayer partner this morning. Father, maybe there's a Christian that's here this morning and maybe they've lost touch with what it means to be consumed with the righteousness of Jesus. And maybe they're battle-weary. And maybe, they're, may, maybe they haven't used the provision of, of the Holy Spirit's power to allow them to live the life that you call them to live. Maybe they need someone to pray with them, to talk to. I pray you'll work in their heart here today. Have your way in this invitation. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you sing with us?
bow your heads with me. Maybe there's someone in this room uh, that couldn't bring themselves to come forward. Father, I just pray before they leave here or they'll let someone know what you're doing in their life right now. Father, I know when your word goes forward, there's always an inner conflict. Will I abide by what the Holy Spirit's trying to do in my life? Or will I continue to hold to my stubbornness? Father, I just pray, Lord, that you've reached many this morning. And I believe you have. I just pray they'll come forward and seek the help that they need to start this new journey of following you and what it means to be a true follower of Jesus. Father, we just thank you for what you so richly have done here today. And Father, we just pray you'll continue to move as only you can move in our lives. We thank you for what you've done here today. Just pray you'll continue to help the words of your word to continue to pierce our hearts and for us to welcome that into our lives. Father, again, thank you for who you are. Would your heads bow and your eyes closed? Would you just pray right now?